a mini-series in the chapter 4, in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians. As we take a break, we're doing a longer series in Ecclesiastes for the first part of the year. And our pastor, Gray, will return to that series when he returns from his paternity leave. But they, Gray and Becca, uh, celebrated the birth of their fourth boy uh, just uh, two weeks ago. And so um, they are still on leave. And I thought about the word leave. It actually makes more sense than like paternity or maternity vacation, right? Because you, if you've had a baby, you, you don't exactly go on vacation. You kind of enter an alternate universe where everything is so, your tunnel vision, there's never more tunnel vision than when you're caring for a newborn. I haven't been outside in two days. All that stuff starts to start to sink in. And so being on leave is the right term for it. We look forward to their uh, return, but this is the second week in this three-week mini-series, mini so we're going to continue in that this morning. And we're calling this series, Do Not Lose Heart, because um, Paul, in writing this letter to the Corinthians, talks about, in the beginning and the ending, of, of losing heart, and what that might look like, why a Christian might lose heart, and how we cannot lose heart, not become discouraged, not uh, give in to this overarching weariness that just invades every uh, part of our lives. And a friend actually asked me after last week, um, you know, why, why this series? Uh, why, you know, kind of probing a little bit. Uh, he, he was caring for me. Uh, why this series on losing heart? Is, uh, is something going on? And uh, basically asking me, is your sermon series a cry for help? Is this, uh, is this a cry for help from the pulpit to say, <laughs> amen, yes, I'm losing. Someone help me. Jesus, uh, help me, please, Lord. But um, that is not the case, I told him. Uh, although, of course, there are things in my life, I, I was happy to answer him that while in this season there's nothing huge that's causing us to lose heart, um, Paul writes about this because this is, a, this is a reality that we will face. Whether we're in a season of being deeply discouraged and, and losing heart, or maybe we're not so much in that, this can kind of still hum in the background of a Christian's life. And we think, I thought being a Christian would, would take me away from this, but it, but it doesn't necessarily do that. In fact, it does not do that. And so um, doing this series, I think, is helpful because it's addressing things that we are experiencing so this week, we're going to look at another reason not to lose heart, uh, another reason not to get discouraged, but we're going to look at something that does discourage us, does discourage us. In the passage ahead, um, we're going to look at, at suffering, at suffering and death in this, in this passage in your bulletin, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 through 15. And um, I'll go ahead and read that for us now. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may manifest in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed, and so I spoke. We also believe, and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence." For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. 
This is the word of the Lord. If you take any tragedy or any moment of suffering, an event of suffering, and you, you come in close to that event, to the people that are closest to that, that suffering, you're going to find that they're asking a similar question. What's one of the most common questions that people involved in a tragedy ask? It is, why did this happen? What is the reason for this? What is the purpose for this tragedy? We ask this to kind of get beyond a tragedy or suffering. We want to look for a reason and maybe even find some redemption. We want to find a silver lining, some reason to keep our hope alive in a tragedy. And so we ask, what's the reason for this? What's the purpose? My family and I live near a roundabout not many of them in Phoenix, so it's a novelty uh, for people driving down the street. But it's also a surprise, a surprise novelty, because the brush has kind of overgrown it and the signs are hidden. And when we moved in, a neighbor showed me uh, video footage of their security camera catching cars, just hitting the curb and flying right over the roundabout, not seeing it, leaving tire marks and metal and whatever's underneath the car scrapped up on the, uh, on the curb. And the person probably experienced some terror, too, as they're just kind of driving and suddenly flying through the neighborhood. Um, in fact, this, this roundabout even made local news, very niche, local news, of, uh, of, and some neighbors were interviewed saying, I hope the city can clear this brush and make the signage more clear and, and paint the curb and really let people know because uh, this is a, a really real problem. Well, if, if, if the roundabout ever gets fixed, where everyone kind of sees it and approaches it the right way and knows what's going on, then, then maybe me and the rest of our neighbors can turn to the three, the four, the five, the ten cars this year that flew over the curb in a crash and say, look, your tragedy, your suffering, the suffering your car endured, there's a purpose in it. The purpose is we cleared the brush, we made the roundabout better, and so future drivers will not make the same mistake as you. Thank you for, for paving the way to us fixing this problem. So really the purpose then, if I was to speak to those people in that way, I would be showing that the suffering they experienced in that moment was really just to prevent future suffering. That was the purpose in their suffering. And uh, this can help, but it's not of much comfort to think that my suffering merely prevented future suffering of others. It's of a little comfort, but, but it's maybe not the, the, the full comfort we would want. So we look beyond that for more redemption, for more purpose. That can't be it. We don't want different parts of our lives to be like files in a computer where you just delete, drag and delete, and it's gone. There's no meaning to it anymore. Stuff gets deleted from our lives, loss, removal, with we don't want it to be where there's nothing to show for it. It's just gone. We need a purpose in our suffering. The Bible affirms this instinct that we have to look, to ask that question, why did this happen? Why did this have to happen? The Bible affirms our desire to ask that question, and it gives us a deeper purpose for our pain, a purpose in how God is working in what's going on. God adding sense to the suffering. He's adding purpose to the pain, and even he has a method in working us in the madness that's happening around us. 
And so we're going to look at this passage this morning that I just read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, which you already heard speaks deeply to suffering, to death, and to even laying down our own lives. And we're going to, as we're going to look at this, we're going to see three truths, three truths in the way that God works in suffering, not merely to prevent other suffering, which is good, but not always a great comfort, but to actually comfort us, encourage us, and help us not lose heart in the face of suffering, death, and laying down our own lives. Here are the three truths this morning that we'll walk through together. The first truth is that suffering yields power. Suffering yields power. The second truth is that death yields life. And the third is that self yields many. Suffering yields power, death yields life, and self yields many. Three kind of inverted things we would not expect not to be possible, but with God, all things are possible, and these three things are true. Let's look at the first one. Suffering yields power. We see this in the first three verses we read, verses 7, 8, and 9. But here, just this description of suffering again. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. So we have this we here given to us to show that this suffering extends beyond just Paul who wrote this to us, to the whole church. We, yes, we often feel this way as Paul outlines here. And this is not a great sales pitch for uh, trying to make more Christians to say this is what your life will be like. Let me read you verses 8 and 9 of 2 Corinthians 4. No, our lives are not always like this, but we often have seasons like this. And for, I'm thankful for the truth and the reality of the scriptures to meet us right where we are, to tell us as Christians what you're experiencing is actually what is expected in this world that you should not be necessarily looking for something else or some change, but God is working even in this season, even if you can't change it right now. This description of suffering, though, is, is very heavy. Paul says he's afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, and struck down. Afflicted, like the word is like a being pressed in on, being pushed as if you're in a crowd and everyone's moving against you. John Calvin said, think of a wave crashing on a rock, just crashing and dashing against a rock. It gets worn down. It's this kind of relentless outward suffering that's happened, afflicted in every way. So this is a battered life. But moreover, he says, I'm perplexed. I'm bewildered. I'm actually at a loss on how to fix this. So there's a, a battering on the outside and a bewildering on the inside. Moreover, he is persecuted, which is to be chased, to be hunted, to be sought after by this suffering. Where shall I go to flee from your present suffering? It is always there. He cannot escape it. Finally struck down, knocked over by the suffering, felled like a tree. On the outside, on the inside, pursued and knocked down. This is the suffering that Paul describes, and for some of us, we have felt this very way. And when was the last time maybe you heard someone mention this to you? We've all had those moments where at work, or maybe in a small group, or quickly at church, someone, you ask someone how they're doing, and maybe something just clicks, and they start telling you 
I'm battered. I'm perplexed. It's like trouble's chasing me, you know, in so many words. And what do we say in that moment? What is the purpose that we give to them? I remember being in, in a class one time and someone just saying, spilling these things to me, and the teacher says, all right, let's start the class. I had one 30, I had 30 seconds to give them the purpose. Of course, I felt that's what I needed to do, to give meaning, to answer with something. We stand stunned before an individual who shares these things with us because it is an enormous weight that they're carrying. We're not sure what the purpose is. We don't know how to encourage them. And what is the purpose of this pain? Now, there is a purpose, and that is that the power of God is working in us. But before I get to that, I want to clarify that the purpose of the suffering that Paul's talking about is actually not in result to sin. There is much suffering in our lives that comes as a result of our sin. Probably just now, in the time of confession of sin, as you were thinking about those things in your life that you want to see God forgive and heal, you're also thinking about the consequences of those sins. But Paul is not describing a suffering that comes as a consequence of sin. Why? He simply says the suffering is what it is. He does not say, well, I, I can't tell the truth. I lie impulsively, so I'm afflicted. He does not say that. He does not say, I can't keep my anger in check. I am perplexed. He does not say, well, I, I've doubted God's promises. I've been faithless, so I'm being persecuted. Persecution is for quite the opposite. And in fact, he says, I, he does not say, I, I gossiped. I, I gossiped, and so I've been struck down. No, he says, I'm battered like a tree in a great wind. Afflicted, persecuted, knocked down, not from an inward rot of the tree, not from a, a beetle that's making its way in the tree and, and slowly killing it, but from the wind, from the outside. This is how I am. And maybe... Maybe we wish we could point to a sin when this type of persecution happens to us, when this type of suffering happens to us. We could say, well, I see, I see now my whole life has been about the world, or I'm too focused on the things of the world, the love of the world. I'm not focused enough on God. That's why I feel this way. That's why I have all this suffering. Lord, I'm sorry. I change. I turn to you. Now take the suffering away. Well, if we could find that purpose, maybe we could even manipulate it. Maybe we could even refute it. We could say, well, I haven't been too worldly. I haven't been that focused on the world. I have been somewhat fo focused on God. God is wrong to give me this suffering. Well, now I am right and God is wrong. And so do we see our suffering and see it as a result of sin and then climb into the lap of the almighty judge and pick up his gavel and say, you judged wrongly. Paul's saying that's not what's happening here. I don't need to trace the suffering to a certain sin. This is the suffering in my life, but that's not the purpose for it. There is suffering in our life that comes from sin, but this is not speaking to that. And that can be a shortcut, but it can be, a dang it can be true, but it can be a dangerous shortcut to think that way. No, this is not a result of sin. Rather, this suffering is for this, that God's power would be made, made manifest in Paul's suffering. And this is true of us. He says this very plainly, very clearly in the seventh verse. He says, this treasure, the gospel, my faith is in a jar of clay. 
to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. This is to show God's power. That is, we should not be surprised by suffering. We don't need to like it. We don't need to be psyched out, psyched up about it and happy about it. It doesn't seem like Paul's very happy, but he's also understands that he's in it because he understands that he is a jar of clay, a common-use utensil, if you will, a multi-use utensil. And Paul wants us to see God's power in our lives, in our suffering, so that he makes this allusion to a jar of clay. He doesn't want us to see ourselves as like china teacups or that tray you only bring out uh, once every year for Christmas cookies or a specialty set of, of cocktail glasses. No, he wants us to see ourselves as jars of clay, as earthenware. Why? So that in our suffering, the power that comes from God will be revealed. Paul's use of clay here is very thematic. If you think even back to the original creation of man, God takes dust from the ground and forms man out of it. And then in the curse, after man has sinned and God curses with death, he says, you're from the dust and you're going back to the dust. Jars of clay, earthenware. But, but we should not be discouraged by this as if God has subjected us to this without understanding. For the scriptures also say in Psalm 103 that he knows our form. God knows that we are dust. He knows we are earthenware. He knows we are jars of clay walking through suffering, and he is pleased to continue to work his power in us. So we will have a humble, we will not lose heart in suffering, but be humble before God, knowing that his power is working in us. And that's what Paul shows here, even in this passage, is um, the purpose of the power in our pain. This is where God's power is working in our pain. You might have noticed Paul clarifies his pain with four clarifiers to show us where God is still working. There's still a margin left where he sees God is working. For even though he lists the things that he is, he says, but I am not crushed, I am not driven to despair, I am not forsaken, and I am not totally destroyed. Even the phrasing of this, I'm afflicted in every way but not crushed, you feel as though Paul is alluding to the 1% that's left. He's 99% maxed out and there's 1% left. Maybe he's saying, I'm, I'm suffering within an inch of my life, but I see the inch. I see the inch. And it is an important inch because God is still working in that inch. And church, have we not felt this power of God working in us even in our suffering when we recognize our own weakness and cry out to God for what we are? We begin to rely on him. And have you not felt that strength, that light, that vigor encourage you to go on and persevere? This is mysterious, but this is God's power working in us. There have been so many accounts of great men and women in the faith suffering. And it's like they're going deeper and deeper in their suffering. When they hit the bottom, they break ground. It's like a well. Water starts to bubble up. God's strength starts to bubble up in their lives. And it becomes a wellspring of God's power working in them. Have you ever been pushed so far in this suffering to see that suffering does yield to power by God's strength? So here is a great truth and a great purpose for suffering, that even in our suffering, God is working his power in us to strengthen us. 
This is what Paul says is why he does not lose heart, because this is happening in him. Here is the second truth. Death yields to life. We see that our suffering yields power. That's the first truth. Here's the second one. Death, even death, yields life. He says in verse 10, I'm always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. And then he says again in verse 11, for we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. Here we see a unique term that Paul is using, a special term, the death of Jesus. That, and he says, I'm carrying in my body the death of Jesus. I'm being given over to death for Jesus' sake. This is immense pain that he's expressing. And this, this term, you see both an active, something he's doing, I'm carrying this death of Jesus, but you also see a passive, I'm being given over to this death. With, with the active, with the carrying, we think of Jesus's car- Jesus carrying his cross, the long road leading up to the cross that Christ went on our behalf, actively engaging in this dying, this prolonged dying on our behalf. Paul says, I- I'm carrying that in my body. But he also says, I'm being given over to death. And we see that too in Christ. When on the cross, he gives up his spirit and dies. ESV says, yields, yielded his spirit given over to death. And Paul says, this too I am given over to. And why would this be? Why would, what would the purpose of this dying unto death, this great walk that Paul is participating in, the reason is, as he says, the life of Jesus would come and be revealed even as I feel like I am dying and maybe even dying. To put it another way, Paul was saying in one and the same body, in one and the same body for Christians, they're both participating in Christ with his suffering unto death and also being renewed by his resurrected life. So this then is is the purpose, is the meaning behind these great trials. So that every trial, every dead end, every bruise, every nightmare day or nightmare month, every torturous second that we endure, we would both see the very life of the resurrected Christ come in and through us. Now, this is maybe a hard word for us to accept, but we actually see this all the time, all around us. For example, an an athlete does not want to win a championship ring by sitting on the bench. No, they want to be out on the court. They want to be playing, sweating, giving of of their energy, almost Uh, You know, the closer they are to basically leaving it all out on the court, right? That's the sweeter the victory will be. Or think about the military even, or the Marines trained to be pushed within an inch of their life, as Paul says. But in the process, enjoying the life that comes of the camaraderie, a group of people struggling together, and to know that he or she is prepared for what is coming. Think of a teacher 
giving of themselves, not trying to remove themselves from their own box, but get at the student and, and, and give of themselves, and die to themselves to teach a concept for the life that will be brought in the student. And I could go on because we all know that to learn a new language or to start a new career or to bear and raise children, uh, to lead in any capacity or to, to budget our money towards a greater goal, these things require an active and passive dying sort of dying and struggle that yields a greater life. And how much more so if that yields a life than the living and dying to Christ to yield his life. And so we see that the call in Matthew 16 to carry our cross and follow him is, is for all of us. And yet, even in walking in that death, we will see God yield life within us. There's no higher calling than to come after Jesus, as he says, to carry our cross. So then, we have this suffering, which yields power, and this death that yields life, and Christ is pleased to work that in us. But I want to stress to you this morning that nowhere in this passage are, are we commanded to seek excessive suffering, to seek more suffering than we have be, been given. Indeed, as Christ said, if anyone would come after me, pick up your cross and follow me. So we pick up our cross and we follow him. But not like at the end of a church event when we all get the folding chairs. We see, I got three. I got six. I'm carrying eight folding chairs to help. I'm a good Christian. Paul's not saying you're looking for three, five, ten crosses to carry. He's saying carry the one you've been given and watch the life of Christ continue to manifest in you. This is a wonderful truth for the Christian that the purpose of our death and suffering would actually bring us closer to the presence of God, yield his power in us, not just that the purpose would somehow defer other suffering, but that it would be working in us today. Here's the third truth. The self yields many. The self yields many. In John 12, it's recounted, this is, this is kind of the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus is headed towards the cross, the last week of his life. In John 12, it's recorded that some Greeks, some Greek-speaking men came to look for him during this final week. And they wanted to see him, but they went through several layers of his disciples before they got to Jesus. And it's unclear from the text whether Jesus ever spoke to them. It seems as though he did not. Instead, Jesus tells his disciples this, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's a hard response from Jesus telling his disciples this type of metaphor or parable to go tell on someone who wanted to talk to him. Why would this be his response? Well, he's talking about his coming death which he's already warned the disciples about at the end of this week, I will be dying. And I think he sees his mission clearly. And so he uses this metaphor. Those of you who have a garden or, or have done any planting of seeds know that when you have the seed in your hand, there it is. That's the seed I paid for. I've got it in my hand. But when you drop it into the earth, it is as if it is dead or lost is you can dig in that soil as much as you want, you will probably not find that seed ever again. And so it is dead to you, and yet it is alive to bear much fruit because over time it comes out of the ground and creates uh, vegetation and plants that in turn bear more seeds 
to, do, to plant even more fruit. What appeared to be lost or even dead has now been, had more fruit. And Jesus, this is Jesus' mindset as he goes towards the cross. He wants to speak to these Greek-speaking men, but he knows he is the seed that has come to be cast into the ground, to die, that it would bear much fruit. Through his death will come life. Again, it just doesn't feel right. Like, go talk to those men. They, they, they sought you out in your last week of life, and, uh, and yet he doesn't do that. He knows it's time for him to die. But, but Jesus knows something that, that we don't necessarily know in the reading. He knows that his self, laying down his self, will yield many, and that's what his metaphor is about. He knows that, that in that moment, he doesn't no longer have earthly capacity to talk to everyone who would want to talk to him, maybe. He needs to stay focused on being the dying seed. But from giving up himself, many will be brought to Christ. And we see this loop closed even in this very book of 2 Corinthians. For who is Paul writing to? A church of Jesus Christ that has been planted in Greece. Greek-speaking people professing the name of Christ. This is the mission. The seed that died has yielded many. And this is what we see in Jesus. And so, just as our Lord did this for us, so we ought to do for many. He lowered himself, even beyond the suffering we discussed in the verses 8 and 9. For Christ himself was driven to despair. He was crushed and forsaken and destroyed on our behalf. But for what purpose? So that the self could yield many Death could yield life, and through his suffering, God's power would work even to us. And as Paul says, this hope, why he doesn't lose heart, in verse 14, I know that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. Christ's ministry bringing in the many. And so here is the great purpose, the why to our suffering and death and giving up ourselves that our, as our own selves are set aside and power and life and grace work within us and around us, others turn, even as Paul says in verse 15, others turn, that grace would extend to more and more people to increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. Our suffering becomes a vehicle for reaching others. Our dying unto death does as well. And as we give up ourselves like Christ, we reach others for Christ. To thank us for our suffering? No, to thank God for the one who suffered first, Jesus Christ. See how in Christ suffering yields power, and see how in Christ death even yields life. See how Christ led himself, uh, gave up himself to yield many. And therefore we do not lose heart, for in a short while we will pass too. And where will we pass? Paul says, into the presence of God. The suffering and the death will end. And we in thanksgiving with the many will praise God and say like Christ said, He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.